0: Welcome to the Living Well Podcast. I'm Mark Hennick. The past six months of the ongoing global pandemic has forced many of us to make huge changes in our daily life. Many parents continue working from home while their kids are spending school days wearing masks and socially distancing themselves from their peers and teachers. The things we may have been too busy to focus on prior to the pandemic have been pushed to the forefront of our routines disrupting our days almost constantly. What are we prioritizing now that we seemingly have more time by ourselves and with our families? Are we prioritizing our mental health needs in this very traumatic and stressful time? The pandemic has not only pushed mental health to the forefront of our daily conversations, it has illuminated insidious problems we're all too often unwilling to face head on. One of those issues has made its way into every family conversation every political speech uh, and every protest held since the death of two black americans by the hands of multiple police officers george floyd and brianna taylor the pandemic has suddenly awoken millions of people to the reality that black americans and canadians have been fighting for hundreds of years marcy In is a television personality She was the host of The Social on CTV and Canada's most watched morning program, Canada AM, for many years before that. Now she's running in a federal election. She says that the pandemic has forced people to confront their own internal biases and beliefs. She says conversations about racism and inequality are happening now more than ever.
1: I think there's absolutely a relationship that if people were out and working and going about their business, that this wouldn't have taken hold the way it has. I also think that people are introspective at this time, that they are looking at the, they have the time to look at their lives, look at choices they've made, uh, look at what needs to change, uh, understanding that less is more, that slower is better. And in doing so, taking stock of their own lives. So as you know, Black Lives, uh, the movement continues, and we see, you know, more stories centered on on BIPOC people and their needs and their demands uh, and what life has been like, people are really looking inward. So I think some things have come together to make this moment more than a moment.
0: Millions of Black Americans and Canadians took to social media as well as to the streets to protest police brutality and racism in North America. Many Black folks were exhausted by the pandemic, the death of yet another Black life at the hands of police, and an audience of folks who were oblivious to their reality until very recently. The protests have been met with support, as well as vitriol, on both online and offline. Marcy and her daughter Blaze were victims of harassment on Twitter, and said it was almost enough to stop her from posting anything at all.
1: I've had to report hundreds of people Um, particularly to to, to Twitter and have had to report not on just my behalf, but on Blaze's too. So Mm. she, she gets some of it. Uh, We've had conversations and we continue to, and I would say maybe a couple of months ago, I said to her when I actually got a death threat uh, online, uh, I said to Blaze, you know what, I've had enough. I I don't Mm. think that I can do this anymore. And she looked at me and said, "But mom, if you don't, who will? And we need your voice. So mm-hmm. if you need to take a time out for a couple of days, I understand that. But please don't remove yourself completely."
0: Marcy has never taken a break from speaking out against racism. However, she took a long break after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor.
1: You know, I stay on the platform and stay on the other platforms because I don't, I don't want people to feel
0: that they won. Marcy says her superiors at Bell Media took her struggle very seriously.
1: Immediately, uh, my executive producer called me on the phone and she was upset. And she said, you're not gonna do the show today. We've put so much on you, and You've been a leader, but we're gonna go forward without you. Um, the president uh, of Bell Media Studios showed up at my house and she um, we had a physically distanced chat. <laughs> And she said, what can I do? Whatever I can do for you, I will do. She set me up with a therapist who I saw just the other day. She set me up uh, with a professor who uh, deals with public facing people and how they deal with stress uh, and everything else. So we had a great Zoom call uh, and I am off for three weeks.
0: Marcy says it has been a long and difficult road to get to where she is today. She has worked twice as hard to get a seat at the table and often felt a lot of pressure to outperform her peers.
1: I always felt that I had to work harder and be twice as good and research twice as much as anybody else, almost to just say, hey, I deserve to be at this table. I deserve Mm -hmm. to be here. And that's just pressure that um, we as Black people, people of color, put on ourselves. And we do do it. And I did it. And I did it all the time. I think I still do it. It's just this, it's almost innate. I don't know mm. if it's a gene, I, maybe, you know, my parents instilled it, whatever it is, it's just working twice as hard. And, and, and also working twice as hard. And a lot of the times, you know, getting half the way, you know, yeah. not even making the kind of progress that one should make if they're working that hard.
0: At the time that we spoke, David Simmons was a senior executive at the McKesson Group. He broke down for me the layers of racism in the workplace that he has worked hard to push through. He says there's a major lack of diversity in executive boardrooms across Canada and the United States.
2: What my lived experience tells me is that there's there's active um, instances of racism where it would manifest itself in a way that you read in a textbook, that Um, There are barriers that are structural that keep people from bringing them full selves to work, feeling included and having the ability to move up a ladder of success or to, to, you know, fulfill their professional ambitions. And then there's a more silent, unintended racism. We call it unconscious bias. And these are things like cultural orthodoxies or cultural expectations that either deliberately or, or inadvertently limit the inclusion of people who are different. Um, and when you think about racial differences, it limits the ability of someone to feel like they should be in the room. The instances where you feel racism the most is when you start. And then when you get to the executive room, you start to, you start to look around and the faces that look like mine tend to be fewer and fewer and fewer. And so the ability to speak firmly and to lead and to, to bring your full self to the table is challenged because it's an environment that doesn't look like you or necessarily feel like you you've got to hire black talent. Like, there's just no other way to get your arms around that other than to say, we're going to go to the places that we think we can identify black cat talent in, we're going to hire them, we're going to mentor them, and we're going to invest in them in a way that unlocks their ability to be
0: successful. Um,
2: and, and when you call that out, it's better for the talent and it's better for the organization.
0: David's story of success echoes Marcy's. He says that he's had to work twice as hard in order to match the success of his peers throughout his career.
2: Ever since I was young, my parents, who loved me very much, and I'm very lucky to have the family that I had, told me, you're going to have to work harder, you're going to have to show up better, and you're going to have to perform more consistently than your peers. And is that fair? No. But that's your life. Hmm. And imagine as a parent, you have to tell your child that. I never, you know, my entire life I was always super competitive and dean's list and honor roll and varsity and all those sorts of things. So my life was no different than a kid who was white, in the neighborhood I grew up in, but my parents still made me very aware of this reality. The first thing people will see about you, whether you want them to see that or not, is that you're black and that will come with assumptions. And so you have to pull up was the phrase that we used in in our community. And you're seeing that come up a lot in the Black Lives Matter movement. We're asking corporations to pull up. Mm -hmm. There's another saying that's, you know, it's a bit of a
0: funny saying, but it's a true saying. We don't have to get ready because we stayed ready. David says the momentum of Black Lives Matter protests, along with confronting racism in the workplace, will only grow bigger from here on out.
2: You know, this is not, a to, to, you know, this isn't a sprint. Hmm. It's a marathon. And I'd say it's a marathon that requires a relay. So, you know, early in my career, I was not signed up to be the voice of the Black employee experience. That was not something I sought out, not something I wanted to do. Um, and I remember as I was getting promoted and moving through a professional sort of cycle uh, at McKesson, one of the questions, my, I was very fortunate to have a coach. And one of the questions my coach asked me was, would you ever consider working in diversity and inclusion? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> no, like I'm not going to be the black executive that, that runs the diversity and inclusion issues. And now that I'm part of a very senior team at the company and have a proximity to our executive committee globally, I realized that even though I didn't take on, the diversity and inclusion portfolio. It is a deep part of my job every day. Mm-hmm. And I am so in love, professional love with our head of diversity and inclusion, Tracy Dunn and her team and what she does. And I'm an ally. I'm a voice. Uh, and I'm going to continue telling that story because there's a fire in me that says, I want to make sure that our company does the right thing. And, they, mm-hmm. and, and, and there's only so many of the voices around that table that look like me. And so I'm going to speak up. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember when, you know, I engaged with our executive team when we were looking at what we were going to do on this issue uh, for our employees in America and Canada after the murder of George Floyd. And I sat down on my computer and I was like, I have to speak up like it's here I am. It's my obligation. Um, and so some of us are going to feel that mantle. And, and if you don't, that's OK, too, because, you know, again, we didn't choose to be in this fight. We, we've been assigned to it. Um, but here we are getting into good trouble.
0: David says that living unapologetically and fully as himself at work isn't always easy, but he encourages others to do so if they can. It forces others to confront their own internal biases and ultimately changes in the workplace for the better.
2: And so one of the messages I've given my teams and I've given, you know, the organizations I'm involved with is get comfort, find comfort in the discomfort, because only then... Can you address these issues? And I've often told uh, Black uh, leaders who are coming up in our company, I know I gave a speech in February to our Black Employee Resource Group. I said two things. Run into your Blackness. Run into it in an unapologetic way, because only when you live your truth are you doing us a favor and helping make our organization more diverse and more aware of the fact that there are limits to us being our full selves. You know what I mean? Like we don't have a choice. So you might as well take up the mantle and find opportunities to feed your soul, for lack of a better word. If I was to sort of invoke Oprah, you need those moments where where you can feed your soul and help others get that nourishment, because it isn't easy.
3: The Living Well Podcast is brought to you by Wellcan, a free mental health and well-being resource offered by Morneau Chappelle. At WellCan.ca and on the WellCan app in the App Store, you'll find information, assessments, and resources to support your mental health. WellCan resources are supplied by morneau Shepell's expert clinicians, as well as through partnerships with some of the biggest companies from across Canada and around the world. And now back to the Living Well podcast and your host, Mark Hannick.
0: In part one of our two-part conversation about racism and mental health, Marcy Ian and David Simmons spoke about struggling to find success as a black professional, as well as speaking out against racism at work and on social media. Now, we continued this conversation in the second part by speaking with Noe Kuo from Morneau Chappelle and Dr. Tanya Bibbs from the Erickson Institute in Chicago. The public deaths of black individuals at the hands of police officers has traumatized black Americans and Canadians for hundreds of years, Reaction to racial trauma manifests in so many ways, whether that be addressing the public and speaking out against injustices, amplifying movements dedicated to protecting and celebrating black life, or taking to social media and educating others. Noi Kuo, the director of Global Critical Incident Response for Morneau Chappelle, discusses how the death of George Floyd prompted a huge collective movement toward finding justice for black people in North America. He discusses the traumatic effects of racism on Black mental health, and he also says that Black folks need to have a safe space in order to process this trauma and heal.
4: It's about a self-protection. So much has been done, so much has been lived, so much may have been experienced by a person that they really are managing their energies to get through their day-to-day. It's not that they don't care, it's that they have to be careful of where they put their energy or they will... Collapse. Now, collapse can mean numbness, not going anywhere, not doing anything. Or it could be, uh, as maybe for some people, so despairing that someone may take their life in, in that sense. Counteracting is really about actions that are taken at large. You know, black people are always doing something in terms of managing or dealing with injustice, whether, th- you know, what is seen very publicly. Uh, protests, activism, uh, petitions, lawsuits, um, and also very internally. What is a black person doing in their day to day, in their interactions, in dealing with it's not video, it's not there's no press conference. However, they're still coping with that sense of injustice and that
0: sense of slight. noise says reactions to the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, among many, many others vary quite a bit depending on the individual.
4: With the uh, death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, uh, unfortunately, so many others and so many other situations which are not video or recorded anywhere but did occur, um, part of a traumatic situation is it can bring forward other realities, other difficulties. And so the strength and the, the strength of the uh, movements Black Lives Matters, the worldwide protests of against anti-black racism and other uh, injustices are reflection, a reflection of not only the traumatic events, the traumatic imagery, it's also the background of here in Canada, U.S., anti-black racism, elsewhere, anti-black racism, but also other racism, that might be more local against a particular group.
0: Noy talks about what both Marcy and David did, a parent's conversation with their child about surviving the world as a Black individual.
4: What parent wants to have a talk with their children, son, daughter, doesn't matter, in terms of this is what you need to do if, in this case, the police, this is what you need to do to limit as much as possible, being beaten, being killed, being shot dead by, in, in a certain context. In and of itself, when in many ways the institutions that are said or understood to be protective, the lived experience of the Black community, the lived experience of other communities, is directly not, that is difficult and traumatizing, and communicating that to one's children or one's grandchildren, whichever children is, is in someone's care, to alert them, this is how you survive in the society. And for those individuals, seeing that for others, the same institutions are seemingly benign, supportive, and protective, that in and of itself is the trauma that is part of what is communicated and lived and experienced.
0: Noy says the most important thing to do as a non-black person is listen and change your own behavior without relying on a black person's approval or guidance in doing so.
4: Oh, I I certainly agree with what Marcia Ian says about it's being exhausting. No one individual can be the representative of a particular group, Um, and no group is a a monolith, the black communities are not a monolith either. To your question, what to do when someone says, well, tell me how I can be a white ally and not be racist. No, that is impossible for me to, be the, to do that job. That's impossible for any black person to do that job. Um, but one important thing is certainly to listen. If a black person says something, Listen. If a black person has been saying that this is racist, this is not okay, a certain term, turn of phrase, behavior, action, listen and accept.
0: Dr. Tanya Bibbs is an associate professor at the Erickson Institute in Chicago, and her research demonstrates how biases begin during infancy.
5: Infants who are exposed to diverse environments show equal preferences for people across race. Um, Infants who are in in, um, environments where they don't have a lot of diversity, where everyone's like, you know, the same race as them or same ethnicity as them, that they show preferences for those ethnicities. So they recognize, so that suggests that they recognize these differences at infancy, but also it also shows us that it's malleable. Um, in other words, it can be changed you know, it it's it's it can be changed, it can be influenced um that in that uh if they are in a diverse environment, then they develop diverse preferences.
0: Dr. Tanya Bibbs says that disrupting learned racial preferences starts when parents and children have critical conversations about race. When children have discussions about differences between people, they can develop healthy narratives when talking about race, racism, and biases.
5: What we see in infants in terms of their preferences, and what we see in young children in terms of implicit bias, um, and what we come to understand with, for example, middle childhood and adolescence, and with regards to things like moral development and civic development— and the differences between those who are exposed to um, diverse environments and diverse perspectives, um, that there is uh, a set of similar outcomes there that suggest that uh, being, not, not just being in a diverse environment, but having opportunities for critical dialogue are, are influential and effective in, in, um, in developing um, a, a less racist response to societal issues but also questioning uh, presumptions or assumptions of things like white supremacy that are embedded in everyday
0: life. She says that children are usually much better at having these kinds of discussions than adults are, since adults have implicit biases.
5: Children are very good at having conversations about uh, race, racism, various forms of social marginalization. Adults, not as much. You know, And, and one of the things that one of the things I'm often asked to do is talk about, talk to adults about how to talk to children about race and racism, um, you know, and, and children learn very quickly. We know from some of the research on uh, these this topic of children talking about race and racism. They learn very quickly that adults are not comfortable having these conversations, and they should have them privately, outside of the adults' ear. Um, and so, when I hear parents, or parents or teachers say, "You know, my child doesn't really notice these things. My child's not talking. You know, that experiencing racism, or my child doesn't really." know about this social phenomena, I suspect that that's probably not true, especially some of my own research has shown that when I talk to dyads of caregivers and their children, um, the parents don't think the children have encountered any of these issues, and the children are telling me about their encounters with these issues.
0: Dr. Bibbs echoes the thoughts of Noy, David, and Marcy about processing racial trauma.
5: Well, I think that one. I think people need to be honest with themselves about you know what they're feeling. I think being honest about sort of what is what is the fatigue factor and what can I take on and what can I not take on, and to be able to find ways to assert oneself when you can about incidents that have occurred. And and I would also say that it's you know it becomes important to have allies. Um, people that you can talk to people with whom you find support so that you can you know you know feel some sense of community and and spiritual um, renewal part of that might be something that has nothing absolutely nothing at all to do with you know your existence as a person of color and maybe that walking in nature is what you need and so walk in nature
0: Many thanks to Marcy Ian, David Simmons, Noi Quo, and Dr. Tanya Bibbs for joining us for these incredibly important, even if they're tough, conversations. Your insights and personal stories have given us such invaluable knowledge.
3: You've been listening to the Living Well podcast. Mark Hennick is our host and executive producer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the show. There's no cost involved. You just hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating to let us know how we're doing. For more information about the show and the WellCan Project, visit wellcan.ca. The Living Well Podcast is produced for Morno Chappelle by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford.